What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back. Today's episode is going to be brought to you by Mystery Ranch, built for the mission. And if you're not rocking a Mystery Ranch Fireline pack, well, you're probably doing it wrong and your back probably hurts. So make sure you uh, get one of those and do it right. But in addition to the epic and overbuilt and most well-built and comfortable Fireline packs in the game, well, they make a ton of other stuff. What is that, you might ask? Well, they make a ton of load-bearing essentials particularly ones for hunting, backpacking, skiing, snowboarding, fishing, everyday carry, law enforcement. The list goes on and on and on and on. Hell, they even make briefcases, which actually I have one, and they're pretty legit. So if you need a pack to throw your civvy gear underneath the seat in your buggy or in your bin in a buggy, well, look no further than Mystery Ranch. And if you guys need to make a crew boss kit out of one of those briefcases, well, you're in luck because Mystery Ranch makes a solution. But even better than the plethora of load-bearing essentials that they make, they are giving back to the community. Yeah. So they are starting the Backbone series, which should be launching here pretty soon. Hopefully, uh, end of this month, maybe beginning of next month, maybe, hopefully. But whole idea is to behind the Backbone series is to highlight the backbone of the Wildland Firefighting Forces here in North America and tell the story of those folks out there in the field. It's pretty badass. And check this out. They're also starting in conjunction with the Backbone series, the 1039 scholarship program. So if you guys happen to be a part of that Backbone series and submit some, uh, some stories to that whole effort, well, you'll have an opportunity to get a scholarship, go back to school, get some education. So Look for that coming down the line as well. But if you guys want to find out more about the ranch and all the good deeds that they're doing, go over to www.mysteryranch.com and check them out. The Anchor Point Podcast is also going to be brought to you by our premier coffee sponsor. Who is that, you might ask? Well, it is none other than Hotshot Brewery. It's kick-ass coffee. Let's try that again. It's kick-ass coffee for a kick-ass cause, and a portion of the proceeds will always go back to the Wildland Firefighter Foundation. But in addition to kick-ass coffee for kick-ass causes, they make a full line of other stuff, like all the tools of the trade to get your morning started off right, whether that be at home or on the line. So if you guys need like an AeroPress, or a pour over system or any of that stuff look no further than hotshot brewery also they got a pretty sweet line of apparel yeah wildland firefighter themed apparel and that is their name of the game and it's pretty epic so look for all their a full assortment of apparel and tools of the trade and their kick-ass coffee but in addition to that they support the anchor point podcast by slinging our merch so if you guys want to get your hands on some sweet stickers or some sweet shirts like that band of brothers shirt or the fire fiend t-shirt the misfits themed one because punk rock isn't dead and punk rock is awesome and fire is punk (laughs) well you can go over to www.hotshotbrewing.com and get the full line of all of hotshot brewing stuff and Anchor Point Podcast stuff. So go over there and check it out. The Anchor Point Podcast is also going to be brought to you by our latest and greatest and newest sponsor. Who is that? Well, it is none other than Manscaped. And yes, your balls will actually thank you. Yeah, they'll be like, hey, thanks, guys. Or something like that. Probably not. But whatever. If you want to personify your testicular region, that's up to you. But... 
Manscaped is here to remind you that 2020 has been the year of things that are completely out of our control, but there is one thing that we can control, and that is the lengths of our unruly bushes. So holiday season is coming up, and I'm going to say this is geared towards, obviously, the guys out there, but ladies, these make excellent gifts, and the holiday season is right around the corner. So go over to www.manscaped.com and check out the perfect package comes with the crop preserver comes with the lawnmower 3.0 comes with a sweet bag and it comes with a pair of super comfy underwear. So if uh, that package needs to be gift wrapped, <laughs> see what I did there. Well, go over to www.manscape.com and what you can do is you can enter the code anchor points. Ah, all one word anchor points at checkout for 20% off plus free shipping. So go over there once again, check them out www.manscapes.com. The Anchor Point Podcast would also like to give a quick shout out to our buddies over at The Ass Movement. And one buddy, well, he's really the whole show, but our buddy Booze. Yeah, he's doing some awesome stuff in the efforts for conservation. I don't know if you guys have ever had this happen, but I was out recently fly fishing and there was a huge pile of human fecal matter gift wrapped in some toilet paper right off the river. It was disgusting, and that shit needs to stop. Good for us. We have people like the ass movement, and that stands for the anti-surface shitting movement. So you can do your part and spread the word, because even Steve Ranella from Meat Eater said he actually compared surface shitters to the likeness of a tweaker, which nobody likes. So we can spread the word and combat this tissue issue by going over to www.thefirewild.com and checking out the ass movement. They have tons of awesome stuff to propagate that propaganda of anti-surface pooping. There's a lot of tongue twisters in this ad, but I'm going to keep rolling with it. So go over to www.thefirewild.com and check out the ass movement and check out the Pooh Bear posters or the Pooh Bear stickers or magnets. Hell, they even have a, a solution for the problem surface pooper in your group. You can gift them a sweet turd trowel over there at the uh, ass movement. And yeah, it's pretty cool. A little uh, lightweight camping trowel to uh, do your business with. So once again, if you guys are interested and want to go check it out, go over to www.thefirewild.com. And last but not least, the Anchor Point Podcast is going to be brought to you by the Smoky Generation, also known as the American Wildfire Experience, which is pretty damn cool. And if you guys uh, don't know what it's all about, well, I highly, highly recommend that you go over there and check it out because what it is, is a digital encyclopedia, if you will, of wildland firefighting stories dating all the way back to the 1940s. There's a collection of over a hundred of them, and now it is an international affair, which is pretty damn cool. So folks from all over the world are now uh, contributing to this effort, which is pretty cool. Bethany has a kick-ass organization going on over there, and she is giving back to the community that made it possible. Oh yeah. So as you guys know, there is a handful of Smoky Generation grants that are out there in circulation, and they are a limited number of five hundred dollar grants to anybody who's telling the story of wildland firefighting, of wildland firefighting, globally now. Yeah, it's not just uh, exclusive to the United States or North America anymore. It is a global affair, which is pretty damn cool. So, those five hundred dollar grants should be uh, back in circulation here probably 
beginning of the year. So be on the lookout for those. But if you happen to be telling the story of wildland firefighting, well, that's your opportunity. So if you happen to be a blogger, a writer, a cinematographer, a photographer, anybody who's telling the story of wildland firefighting, definitely check out the Smoky Generation. And if you guys want to find out more, go over to www.wildfireexperience.org and check it out. of this podcast do not reflect the views and opinions of the United States government, the Department of the Interior, the Department of Defense, the Department of Agriculture, the United States Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, National Park Service, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, or any private, municipal, county, or state firefighting organization, any law enforcement agency, any medical provider, or any contractor employed by any federal agency. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back to another episode. Welcome to also the season that will never end. It'll go on and on, my friends. But hey, you know what? Eventually it will end. And uh, yeah, pretty soon it'll be the winner. So stay in there, hang in there, stay safe, stay savage. And uh, yeah, keep doing your damn thing. But anyways, today on the show, I've got a gentleman by the name of Lars Filson. You've probably seen him running around on the old IG, and he is very embedded into the education world of Wildland Fire, which is pretty cool. So Lars is a senior fire ecology and management major over at the University of Idaho, uh, down there in Moscow, Idaho. And uh, aside from that, he is the current national president of the Student Association uh, for Fire Ecology. It's pretty damn cool. So we're going to learn all about that and a little bit of uh, that program and also the Grangeville Hell Attack program, which is he is also a part of, which is pretty damn cool on the show today. So I hope you guys enjoy the show. And yeah, without further ado, I'd like to introduce our good friend. Lars Filson, welcome to the Anchor Point. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast. Today on the show, I've got my good friend, Lars Filson. What's up, dude? How's it going, man? Oh, it's pretty good. Another uh, beautiful Saturday in old Reno, Nevada. Mm-hmm. Where are you at, man? I am in uh, Moscow, Idaho. I'm a full-time student at the University of Idaho, uh, senior year, majoring in fire ecology and management. And I'm just wrapping up kind of my first midterms week. Things are a little spread out this year with like COVID stuff, but made it through the week, got through some midterms, got some big projects done. So nice. pretty relieved right now. Yeah, that's always a relief, man. And uh, I don't envy you because the whole college and COVID thing, it just does not work well. It's 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 a shit show. You think fire season and COVID was a challenge? University and COVID is a whole other thing. Yeah, no kidding, man. Well, I remember when it first like kind of hit, uh, I was in my AEMT class and it's a very hands-on skill, you know, any, you know, emergency medical training is very hands-on. It's a very tactile skill. So like trying to do all of the education via zoom and then go in once a week to do your practicals. It's like, Oh God, dude, it was a pain. 
Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine, uh, you know, similarly, this is like my senior year. So I've got my senior capstone class right now. That's like a prescribed burn lab. And so there's supposed to be a really hands-on element to this course. And typically going into this time of year, we're doing a lot of burning for this class, whether it's on the experimental forest or with uh, neighboring partners And between a limit and burning this year and just challenges and getting the group together, it's been really slow to get off the ground. Um, we'll see what opportunities really get to actually go put some fire on the ground. But oh, that sounds like fun. But yeah, man, uh, we'll get into that in a little bit. But tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, who do you work for? What do you do? A little history, a little history lesson about yeah. the here. So as I mentioned, full-time student at the University of Idaho. We'll talk about this a little later on, but I actually transferred here in the spring of 2019. And shortly after I transferred to the University of Idaho, I found my way onto Grangeville Hell Attack. Um, and we can talk about that more later too, but the location has been extremely convenient and it's been so cool. Um, a lot of my peers at the university also work on the Nez Pierce Clearwater. And I can't tell you how much fun it is to roll up to a fire and be with dudes that I have like classes with or get the opportunity to like travel with for school stuff. And it's really valuable because like I already know those guys, I know what they're about. And so if they're in command or I'm in command, it's like really easy to delegate tasks or like know who I can depend on. You already got that report so really kind of going on. Exactly. Yeah, and then easy. shortly after I transferred to the University of Idaho, um, one of the faculty members here on campus actually reached out to me and express some interest in me taking over the position of national president for the student association for fire ecology. Uh, so I started serving my first term in 2019. I'm serving my second term now, and it's been an amazing opportunity. That's kind of what I'm here to talk about today and kind of spread the good word about the student association for fire ecology. Well, nice. Well, shit. That's a perfect segue. Let's get into it, man. So what is university of Idaho, right? This is all a university level sponsored or provided, I guess, for a program, right? And it's the University of Idaho SAFE SAFE. So students, what was it again? Student Association for Fire Ecology. Okay. Run it down, man. Tell us everything we need to know about it because it sounds pretty damn cool. Yeah. So it is a really cool opportunity. Um, We're essentially the student chapter of a larger professional organization. Um, And so the Association for Fire Ecology is an an international organization dedicated to improving the knowledge and use of fire in land management. Um, they're basically a cohort of scientists, educators, students, managers, practitioners, policymakers, and interested citizens helping to shape the emerging profession and grow the field of fire ecology. Uh, so basically on the big end, you have the professional organization and then underneath that you have student organizations. And so we have 20 local chapters that are all administered by me and my three other officers as like the national chapter. Um, And the Association for Fire Ecology actually began with a small group of researchers and fire managers calling themselves the California Association for Fire Ecology. And uh, around 97, I think, is when the association started to really grow. And since then, we've established ourselves as an international leader. Uh, We put on the International Fire Ecology Management Congress every two years. We'll talk a little bit more about that, but it's been a really cool opportunity to be involved with that. Uh, and then SAFE was actually started around 2000 um, by a group of undergraduate students at the University of California, Berkeley and the University of California, Davis. Um, and as I mentioned, it's essentially grown to 20 chapters across every region of the United States now. So it's a really good opportunity for students to be able to network, to access information, access different funding. Um, and we put on a lot of cool training opportunities. Most chapters in the country have a burn exchange that goes on during spring break. And that's been a great opportunity. 
So who is this open to? Is it? I mean, you said it's an international organization, the AFE, the mm-hmm. Association of Fire Equality, Ecology. So that is global, right? Yep. And yep. these subchapters are the students, subsects, I guess you could say, the Student uh, Association of Fire Ecology. So there's many yep. chapters around the world, and they're all dedicated to fire ecology and the education thereof, right? Yep. Um, a lot of it... It has a strong basis in education and in science, but depending on like where you end up, like the University of Idaho chapter is super operationally minded. Uh, almost all of our folks are forestry technicians during the summer for the Forest Service of the BLM. Uh, and then we spend a lot of time locally as an, in an effort to raise money for the club, doing hazardous fuels reduction for private landowners. Um, but back to your question, anyone can join. Anyone can be a member of the Association for Fire Ecology And part of what I wanted to kind of pitch today is that if there are students out there at universities um, that don't already have safe chapters and you don't even necessarily need to have like a fire program or college natural resources, you can create a safe chapter at your university and allow it to be an opportunity for students to come together, network together, uh, spend time getting training opportunities and stuff like that. Yeah. That sounds like a, a pretty badass little organization actually, especially since we're all in the fire realm in some way, shape or form. And yeah, you can mm-hmm. basically just do this in the winter and get an education out of it and further your career. That's pretty dope. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and as you mentioned, further your career, uh, I started out, I graduated from high school in 16. So I'm on the younger side. You're a baby. Uh, and when it came, yeah, just a young buck. Uh, when it came time to kind of go to school, uh, I was, looking at community colleges. And it was at a time that Oregon was offering to cover tuition for students going to community colleges uh, within six months of graduating high school. So it was a great opportunity. And I settled on Central Oregon Community College in Bend um, because I knew I could keep mountain biking. I had spent time snowboarding there. It's cool area. And kind of just on a whim decided to pursue uh, wildland fire fuel management for my Associates of Applied Science degree. And I'd spent time on like trail crews in high school. So it just seemed like the transition that made the most sense, but I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. And I kind of like made it through my first year of college, like nothing crazy. I was still racing bikes pretty heavily at the time. So I was like focused on that more. Um, And then the second year, the classes really started to interact with each other. And I saw how all these factors of like forest ecology, fire ecology, uh, fire policy, entomology path pathology, like all interacted together to kind of create this system of involvement. Um, and I got really interested in it. So the way that I ended up at the university of Idaho, uh, and ultimately being involved in safe and AFI was kind of a weird path. Um, things were pretty random, but it feels like they just fell into place at the right time. So, uh, I grew up in Southern Oregon, uh, in a little place called Ashland, some of you guys might be familiar with that. There's obviously just a pretty serious, devastating fire there. Um, after I graduated high school, I ended up going to Central Oregon Community College and kind of on a whim decided to get my Associates of Applied Science in Wildland Fire Fuel Management. And it sounded interesting. I didn't entirely know what I was getting myself into. Uh, and I kind of made it through my first year of college, like nothing special, scrape by in classes, whatever. But then my sophomore year, my classes started to interact at a higher level and I started to get way more interested in fire and, uh, forest, um, forest ecology and applied forest ecology and got to see at a high level how those classes interacted. 
and decided to spend my first season fighting fire with the Forest Service. Um, got on with the Sisters Ranger District on the Deschutes National Forest. Love and that area. while I was there, um, what? Oh, I said I love that area, man. It's uh, it's awesome over there. Yeah, it's rad country. It was fun firefighting. And as far as like studying fire ecology goes, there's like very few areas in my mind that are like as fire adapted as Central Oregon is. It's pretty cool the research that's come out of there. And it's just like very easily evident, I think, to the public, to scientists, to whoever that like that area is fire adapted. Um, but while I was working sisters, I got a lot of exposure to our AFMO fuels who had already sat on a panel in some of my classes previously. And she knew that I was really interested in, uh, fuels management. And so at her recommendation, I started to look into four year programs and she kind of filled me in on the fact that like you basically cap at a GS nine, um, on the fuel side, at least if you didn't have that four year degree. And so in an effort to meet the 401 series, I decided to kind of look into Oregon State University and the University of Idaho. And early on, um, looking at the University of Idaho, I heard from a lot of folks that the program was extremely hands-on and that I was going to get a lot of like career applicable skills out of it rather than just like a theoretical education in fire ecology. And so that really piqued my interest. And then the more I looked into it, I realized like the University of Idaho really helped pioneer the study of fire ecology at the university level for the United States. And so it has a really rich history of having created a lot of really impressive fire managers and having produced a lot of the research that's gone on uh, into this field. And so I made the decision to come to the University of Idaho. It's been awesome. I've had a great time. Uh, I feel like I have a really close connection to the Anchor Point podcast. Uh, one of your early episodes was with my faculty advisor, Dr. Randy Brooks. And Love I actually had the opportunity to participate as a study subject in the research that he talked about. And that was really cool. Uh, his daughter-in-law also happened to do uh, her PhD on wildland firefighter body composition change. So I got to participate in her research as well. And then Mike McManus, who you had on the show, uh, I think this summer, I had the opportunity to actually go to Florida with him over spring break and do some prescribed burning with the Nature Conservancy. So he was working on, on his RXB2 and I was just their dragon torch, but he's an awesome guy. I've had a great time working with him. So much respect for that dude. It's such a small world that fire can be. And uh, with a program that you're in, like you said, I mean, the university system, it pretty much implements or is the foundation of policy and like how we do business out in the field for wildland fire. Right. But it's such a small world, you know, Randy, you know, his daughter, his stepdaughter or his, uh, yeah, his daughter and Mike McManus. That's so true. That's trippy to me, man. It's like two degrees of separation. Yeah, it's wild. And then Randy's son too jumps out of the same airport that I work at in the summer. Randy will be texting me all summer, like asking what fires I've been on. And, uh, that dude's awesome. He's really been pivotal in helping me get integrated at the university really quickly. Nice, man. So as far as that study with Dr. Brooks, how'd that go for you? I mean, what was that, that experience like for you? The experience was wild. Uh, it was a really cool time to participate in that. Cause it was, I went to Alaska for almost a month. And so obviously like a lot of folks had like different responses. We were about 60 hours or uh, 60 miles South of the Arctic circle. And so that messed with people's sleep schedule a lot. Like some of my friends like could not sleep because it was just light out so much. Uh, and so I was wearing like this little bracelet thing 
that essentially tracks your fatigue level and like the quality of your sleep and how much sleep you're getting. And so coming back from Alaska and just the whole summer in general and kind of plugging in that data and like Dr. Brooks was kind of explaining to me like what it meant. I realized that, uh, I can recover from not having a lot of sleep really quickly. There were some pretty early shifts that I worked and then looking through the data, like we could see like one or two days later, like I'd be fine again. So after like eight, 10 hours of sleep bounce right back. So that was cool. Uh, it was really interesting to kind of learn about the body composition stuff. And so we were getting like all of our body composition measurements taken, um, pretty regularly. And I was like at the peak prep for fire season. So it was really interesting to see like how that fluctuated through that time period of like running a lot and lifting super heavy and trying to eat really clean going into the season. That's pretty cool. I mean, what was the changes over the course of time, uh, with the body composition study? Um, so it's shown pretty consistently and you know, there's some variability in the season and the type of resource that's actually like participating in the study, but in both myself and then the pilot study with the jump program, they found that most firefighters um, experienced a decrease in muscle mass and an increase in fat. And we had kind of a weird season. Um, it was pretty slow this season that I wore the wristband. And so, you know, there's a number of ways that could have happened. I could have had a lot of weekends off where I was drinking beer and eating pizza. Uh, but it also could have had the opposite effect where like we were PTing more regularly because we weren't on fires. Um, ultimately, I saw a pretty it wasn't any like crazy change, but I definitely decreased my muscle mass throughout the fire season, which wasn't super surprising. Having already read the pilot study, I kind of expected that to be the result. Yeah. It was kind of like one of those things. I was like, you, you already know what you're getting into and just the experience alone of fighting a couple of seasons, you know, fighting fire for a couple of seasons, you know what you're getting into. Yeah. The cool thing that I've really taken away for that is how I get ready for my fire seasons. Now. I think there's like this weird idea in certain groups in fire that you like don't need to come in fit and your fitness will increase throughout the fire season. But if you're familiar with like Dr. Brooks research and what a lot of other people are keying into is that that cumulative fatigue adds up and you either get burnt out or it has negative impacts on like your body composition or just your health in general. So I'm really trying hard to come into fire season at my absolute fittest and then maintain that kind of through the first month. And then when things start to get busy, you're just kind of like, you know, hands off, trying to maintain whatever you can, wherever you can. But yeah, things start going downhill pretty quick, especially if it gets busy like this season, man, it was crazy though. This, this season was kind of one of those standout seasons. And in, in my opinion, uh, it kind of seemed to me like it started off pretty slow and then all of a sudden it's like someone hit a, a light switch and turned on fire season and turned it up to 11. So it, it, I don't know, man, it's one of those things, but even if you're not fighting fire, you're still doing project work. You're still PT and you're still doing your normal thing. So I could definitely see, uh, that rinse and repeat cycle having long-term health effects. And that's some of the things that Dr. Brooks's study has, you know, put out there, especially with the sleep. And then the other side with the, uh, body composition study as well, read a little bit about the body composition one that I haven't, I'm not well versed in it, not as well versed as a sleep study. Yeah, man. And it's, it's really interesting. I can't really highlight how cool it is to be involved in that and get to hear about the results kind of early on and have access to that kind of research that's being produced. Um, it's really, and that's something I wouldn't have gotten had I not come to the university. So that's really paid off in spades. Nice, man. So coming to the university of Idaho and integrating yourself into the safe program, the, uh, yeah, that, that whole program, you guys, <laughs> you guys said you get to do operational burning as like a primary education tool. 
Let's talk about that. It's honestly so cool, dude. Like it's some of the most fun I've had with like my friend group here on campus. Cause a lot of my friend group is central to the safe club. And a lot of us are in the fire program together. But for those of you guys that don't know, the university of Idaho actually has a 12,000 acre experimental forest. And that is entirely student run. Uh, so all the logging, all the planting, all the cruising, all the marking, all the burning, uh, fuels reduction stuff is all implemented by students. Some of this stuff gets contracted out. We actually just had a timber sale going last week. Uh, and this timber sale on our forest sold for just under a million dollars, which was crap. insane. Yeah. Kind of a big deal. I mean, timber prices are up crazy high right now, but it was really cool. Um, to kind of like see the whole process. A lot of my friends were involved in the marking and cruising of that. Uh, and then we're actually, I'm taking a forest operations class right now. So we're going out to that logging site pretty frequently to kind of check things out and see how things are going. So you guys get to, having, Oh, go ahead. Uh, having that experimental forest provides us with a lot of opportunities to get out and burn. And that's been a really important part of like the senior capstone project in years past. Uh, and a lot of it tends to be like uh slash reduction after like, um, clear cuts or at least like pretty heavy selective logging. We do a lot of like slash removal stuff. Um, but we're starting to get more into like kind of under understory burning for more ecological benefit. And it's been really cool to kind of see that. And so that senior capstone, a lot of times we're involved in the writing of the actual prescription that gets utilized on the forest for burning, which is really cool. So from start to finish from basically seed to putting fire on the ground and logging it and removing the trees, you guys get to do everything. Yeah. That's so awesome. That's super in-depth. It's really cool. Yeah. And they're paid positions. So a lot of my friends, uh, they that's where they work on the weekends. Like that's their kind of winter gig during the school year. That's wild, man. I mean, but the the benefit too, because you guys work hand in hand with the federal government to, you know, give policy proposals, give, you know, hard data that you've learned from this experimental forest back to basically implement different cha- or like changes for future future firefighting efforts, right? Yep. And, and we work really closely with a lot of those partners. Just last week, um, this prescribed burn lab class I'm in was up on the Idaho panhandle forest and um, did some kind of FEMA work for a burn that they had going on up there. And so that's been a really cool opportunity. It's pretty tough for us to get out and actually drag torch on federal units as students, even though a lot of us are employed uh, by the forest service, but they will at least like provide opportunities for us to come out and do like fuels monitoring or at least like kind of, um, I guess, watch burns go on, which is really valuable for some of the students that have less fire experience coming into the program. Do you guys have opportunities to get red carded and get out there on the line through the university? Not, not the forest service per se, or yeah, any other federal agencies, but through the university itself, do you guys have the opportunity to get red carded and go out? Yep. Um, and another thing that one of my professors, Heather Hewitt is working on really heavily right now is getting some of our courses recognized by NWCG. So this prescribed burn lab uh, class I'm taking right now, I should be leaving that class with S two nineteen and RX three ten completed already. And so she's been putting in a lot of work to make sure like quals like that get recognized because the reality is like this program is so intensive. By the time you get your undergraduate degree done, you've covered almost more in depth than a lot of the classes go into RX three ten S two nineteen all of your red card quals S two ninety stuff like that but it's been a challenge in the past to get NWCG to recognize that. So people are putting in a lot of effort right now to kind of make that uh, a possibility. Is it more or less of a bureaucratic hangup that's kind of preventing that whole, whole thing? 
Yeah, I think so. And I'm not super keyed into the details on it, but, uh, you know, I think that there's just been this standard of the way that those courses have been taught in the past. And it's kind of tough to like, make sure the material lines up with what we're getting out of the classroom. Um, but I think that it's headed in the right direction and I hope to see that change. Uh, that was a really cool experience I had when I was at Central Oregon Community College. For those of you guys that don't know, COCC is the East Slope Training Center um, for the East Slope of the Cascades. And so when I was a student there and they were offering like SNL courses, I could just freely enroll in those. There was because no, like, the state of Oregon was paying my tuition at the time, it was no expense to me. So I knocked out like Urban Ops, uh, Fellowship to Leadership, my saucer my first season, I got my red card through COCC. So that was a great opportunity. And so I've seen how having access to courses like that on a college campus can be a really positive thing for students. So I'm really excited to see folks pushing for that at the university level as well. No, that's a solid thing too. I mean, I, I, I try and push the education thing as well. I mean, it's not for everybody, but there's a lot of opportunities out there, like you're saying. And those are oftentimes the courses that get people hung up and stuck in their career at that GS4 level or something like that. So if you guys want to move up, look around for these opportunities because ultimately at the end of the day, that 290 is going to be, or some other class is going to be the one that's holding you back. Exactly. And then uh, you were asking about the red card thing and some burning opportunities. One of the coolest things um, that I've had the opportunity to do through the University of Idaho is that every spring break, we send students typically out to the Southeast to do some prescribed burning. And there's a course that's tied to this, um, but it's kind of like one of those like senior kind of capstone style courses. So that typically has pretty small enrollment and we won't turn any student away that wants to go burn. And so like last year we had a ton of students. So we sent a handful of students. It was myself and uh, three other students to the Disney wilderness preserve outside of Kissimmee, Florida. And then another group went to South Carolina. Uh, another group of 10 students went to South Carolina to burn there. And that trip is the most fun that I've had in my college career. Um, the first year that I went this year, we got cut a little bit short because of COVID. But the first year I went, we were there for 10 days and we burnt like just under 2000 acres. And I think four or five operational periods and you're getting experience in an entirely different fuel type. Like you're never going to see saw palmetto out West, but getting to burn with like that saw palmetto with a longleaf pine overstory was really cool. And in my opinion, it was really comparable to like a ponderosa pine overstory with like a sage or bitter brush understory that you'd find somewhere like central Oregon. So there was a lot of really cool applicable skills I was able to take from that and kind of bring back to my work out West. Yeah. That's a lot of skills. I mean, putting fire on the ground. I mean, you I are, I'm willing to say that you arguably learn more about fire behavior by putting fire on the ground than actually fighting it. Yeah. It, um, it provides some really cool opportunities because you're actually like, you can play with the ignitions pattern and, in an environment like that, and especially in Florida, because it's so flat and it really had this feeling of being like pretty low consequence burning. There was a lot of time to like step back and be like, okay, well, if we switch the ignitions pattern to this, or we start lighting uh, against this wind pattern or with the wind pattern, like what does the fire actually do? It was really, really cool, very valuable to get that experience and kind of see that. And that's a cool thing too, is like, I mean, Florida, the whole South pretty much in general, they have a very robust prescribed fire program. And a lot of people go down there for uh, what's the the training program, the Trex Exchange, I believe it's yep. called. They go down there. They do the uh, PFTC as well, the Prescribed Fire Training Center. They do that, and 
like you were saying, it's, it's not necessarily low consequence, but it's a very controlled environment. And Mm -hmm. I think that the outreach for the public out there with the forest service and how they basically explain what's going on with the prescribed fire. I think that does justice for the communities because now they understand what's going on. You have the opportunities, the further benefit of burning X amount of acres and putting smoke in the sky. People are used to it. And I think it's a wonderful idea. And the only place that I've seen that level of understanding on the West Coast is probably two places, probably Yosemite National Forest. And like you're saying, Sisters uh, Deschutes area, they have a very robust burning program over there too. Yeah, it was pretty wild. Um, the Southeast wasn't really on my radar before we went down there for fire and seeing like kind of the social paradigm shifts with how fire was like, uh, viewed by the public and accepted really was like mind blowing. And people were super excited when they heard like what we were there to do. Um, I don't think we got a single negative comment the whole time we were there and we were all kind of laughing about it. Cause like out West, someone would have gotten upset if they heard students were like flying in from somewhere to come like light the forest on fire. Uh, and so that was wild. Uh, it really made me want to kind of spend some more time working down in the Southeast in the future, maybe try and pick up like a second 1039 one winter. Yeah, that'd be cool, man. So speaking of the whole culture and like paradigm shift of how to explain the, the resource benefit for putting prescribed fire on the ground here out West, because like you said, when people see smoke in the air, at least out West, it's like emergency. This is not good because we've had so many destructive wildfires. So what do you think we could do as far as changing that dynamic between fire and the culture of the West? How can we do that? That's a really good question. And I think that it's a really slow process. Um, You know, change doesn't come quickly. And especially with something that's so ingrained into American culture in the Western U.S. as fire suppression is this is going to be kind of a long winded process. And I think education uh, and public outreach are really going to be the front line. I'm really glad you asked this. I'm pretty excited to share that. I actually um, just took a position for the academic year. Uh, Idaho Firewise has hired me as an intern and I'm going to be working as the administrative coordinator for the Idaho prescribed fire council. And the Idaho prescribed fire council is pretty young in its development. It's um, kind of just being formed over the past year, but In other states, Oregon, Florida, Wyoming, uh, prescribed fire councils have played a really important role in getting public outreach completed and also impacting legislation to create more opportunities to put good smoke in the air, essentially, but do it in a way um, that we're ensuring that it does benefit the public and helps with fuels reduction and has ecological benefit. And so I think that at a local level, prescribed fire councils can have a really, really positive impact as we kind of like chip away at this uh, smoky bear out at all costs kind of message that's been portrayed. Yeah. It's kind of one of those messages that's kind of, so to speak, I mean, using air quotes here, bit us in the ass in the future in the long run, because at the end of the day, I mean, if you reduce the threat of, you know, overly overstocked forests, you're going to reduce the occurrence of catastrophic wildfires at the end of the day. I mean, it's, I, I fully, fully understand. And I'm very aware that it's more of a complicated subject than just any one topic uh, or any one solution, but it's something, it's a step in the right direction. And I'd like to see more of these councils pop up because I think they're needed. Yeah. I agree. And I think that a lot of managers are coming around to that idea and there's a much bigger push to kind of get them created um, we've had a really positive response just in the short period that the Idaho prescribed fire council has been around. 
we have a ton of folks that are interested in, in either participating in leadership or at least being in the email list and being in the loop with what's going on. And so I think this is going to create some really valuable opportunities for hopefully training exchanges uh, and hopefully ultimately putting more fire on the ground and not just any fire, but really good fire that has a lot of different benefits. Oh yeah. The resource benefit alone is great, but you know, also the insurance costs and all the other things that come along with wildfire, catastrophic wildfire, at least, you know, the floods, the landslides, the nuked forests. I mean, this stuff never comes back, at least in your and my lifetime here on the West coast in certain areas. But yeah, I think it would do some justice to educate the public and, you know, introduce some more fire on the landscape, not only for public benefit, but resource benefit as well. I fully agree. I do think, uh, one thing that I frequently feel that we as land managers and fire professionals need to be really careful about moving forward is that I think there's a lot of talk about how prescribed fire prevents catastrophic fire. And I think that that can be a really misleading statement that could potentially have some negative impacts if we continue to push that narrative moving forward. I think it's really important that we share with the public that prescribed fire is really effective in reducing hazardous fuels looting, which in turn typically reduces uh, fire behavior or fire intensity, and also reduces resistance to control. So you're a lot more likely to be able to catch a fire in an area that's been previously treated. But if conditions line up, like what we saw in Ashland, Oregon during the Alameda Drive fire, or what they're seeing in Colorado right now, it's not going to matter if hazardous fuels reduction has been done or not. Um, in theory, with the, reduce in, with the reduction in fuels and density, you're reducing the potential for like continuous crown runs, uh, or sustained extreme fire behavior, but it isn't preventing it necessarily. See, I think that's a beautiful way to explain it because, you know, I see it from a, I guess a very 30,000 foot elevation because I've been operational my entire career. So you definitely see when you come to a point where something's been commercially thinned or if something's been previously burned, fire behavior definitely dies down. And also the resistance to, you know, sustained crown runs or sustained extreme fire behavior. Yeah. It's, it's, it's wholly evident that this is effective at catching fires. Now, if we have a freak windstorm like we did on the beachy Creek, or, I mean, it wasn't really a freak windstorm. We saw it coming from a mile away, but things happen, right? This is nature. We're fighting a force that's way more infinitely powerful than you or I, or any amount of resources can throw at it but these areas that it did start to chew through, they were able to catch it in some of those areas from my understanding, at least from what I've heard from the boots on the ground. Yeah, it's definitely uh, an interesting one. And, you know, in the grand scheme of things, you also have to take a step back and think on when it comes to large fire management, we talk about catastrophic fires, like how much of that fire is actually catastrophic. And when you look at severity mapping, a lot of times, like you'll see a lot of fluctuation in fire behavior and that results in fluctuations in mortality. And ultimately, you know, I don't think it gets talked about enough, but you can have wildfires that actually produce really healthy ecosystems or environments because you're reducing or you're producing mortality in some places. And so you're getting kind of a mixed age sand. You're probably getting some different species composition that's establishing kind of like as a pioneer species in areas that have seen heavier disturbance. Uh, and that's something that I think can get talked about a little bit more too, is even catastrophic fires um, can have benefits. And although the benefits might seem minute in severe situations, uh, they're still benefits and it's going to help us in the long run. Yeah. Well, I kind of want to clarify that point uh, there, that 
I guess that phrase that I'm using catastrophic wildfire. The reason why I say catastrophic wildfire is because of the threat to property and life. That's what I consider catastrophic because the force is going to burn no matter what. Now, can we help reduce the intensity of said burn? And like I said, you know, make it so it's actually beneficial. I mean, a lot of ecosystems need are are fire reliant on propagation, right? That's no, that's no surprise to us, right? at least from your and I perspective. When I say catastrophic wildfires, I'm talking about a subdivision becoming a fuel type. That's what I mean by catastrophic wildfire. But that's another thing too, that whole wooey interface. I mean, we have nowhere else to go. All the valleys pretty much on the va- on the West Coast are packed and we only have the opportunity to spread outward into this wooey, this wildland urban interface. So as far as the relationship between humans and wooey and wildland fire, there needs to be some things probably done in that regard. Just my opinion. No, and I fully agree. Uh, The wildland urban interface issues definitely pose like one of the most serious, complicated issues facing fire management right now. And I'd like to circle back, you know, we've talked about it, but uh, there's some special stuff going on in central Oregon. And during my short time there, I was amazed at some of the prescribed burning that was going on and they were burning almost directly across the street from subdivisions or communities. And it was really impressive to see. And I think a lot of that came with really strong public outreach and a lot of good communication that kind of garnered public support. I think the public and sisters and bend has also seen its fair share of very nearly catastrophic fire. And so I think that people that are really keyed into like what good management looks like and what the benefits of that are, but I was really, really impressed um, with the professionalism displayed during these like really complex prescribed burns. And they seem to get really positive uh, results and really positive feedback from the public as well. Oh yeah. And especially with a community like Bend, I mean, it's not a small community. You can get away with a lot more using air quotes here again in smaller communities. If you're burning around smaller communities or doing prescribed fire down or upwind or downwind, it doesn't really matter of a smaller community, rural communities. But when you get to a, a large town or a large city like Bend, there's a lot of things that go on top of that, especially with NEPA. You have sensitive populations that are very sensitive to smoke. I mean, a lot of these conditions have to be utterly perfect for your drift, for your fire behavior, all this other stuff, just because of that population density so close to the uh, prescribed fire site. You know, in my hope with coming to the University of Idaho, and I have a lot of confidence that um, my experience here is helping produce uh, the next crop of fire managers that are going to be successful in meeting those objectives and finding the opportunities that are going to provide the best results. And I think that's really important. You know, you've kind of talked about the education component isn't for everyone. And I think that the education component can really um, get negative feedback in operational fire. And it's tough, dude. I have to end my season early to come back to school. Uh, everyone calls you short time or whatever. Uh, it's not my preference. That's for sure. I'd rather be out still working with friends, but, um, it's been really rewarding on one hand. And it's also given me a lot of confidence moving forward in, in where this country is headed. And I think there are really good folks who are ready to kind of pick up the torch, so to speak, and make sure those things happen. It's going to take an army, man. That's for sure. Um, but luckily we have organizations like University of Idaho safe and 
there's other ones around the the nation and the world apparently, <laughs> which is cool. And I think that uh, yeah. I mean this is a global thing. So I think the more that we share knowledge and share those those lessons learned, I think the better that we could be overall as a whole. Yeah, and you know, talking about the educational component and uh, you know, incoming crops of new land managers and fire managers segues really well into something I'm pretty excited to talk about. Um, one of the things that the Association for Fire Ecology has done is developed um, professional certificates for fire professionals. And so um, when these were developed, the goal was to further promote ecologically based science and management in wildland fire and fuels through accredited professionals. Um, and becoming certified formally acknowledges your education, your experience, accomplishments, and offers employers a way to identify you as a recognized wildland fire professional. And so I think that's really important. I think a lot of folks um, don't know about the Association for Fire Ecology and the fact that we offer that. Likewise, the University of Idaho is one of the accredited programs in the country. Um, so as our folks graduate from this college, from the university, we can apply straight away and get accredited. Um, it's a pretty reduced process to get our accreditation. With that being said, students graduating from other universities that aren't accredited yet, um, can still essentially submit all their documentation and petition the Association for Fire Ecology to accredit them. Um, and so we offer 11 total certificates for fire professionals, uh, three of which are initial pathways. And one of the things that we're really excited to talk about is our new uh, wildland fuels technician certificate. And so based on an increased need for professional uh, wildland fuel managers, we've kind of pushed out this new um, certificate to make sure that there's kind of some consistency in, in who's getting through that career path. That's awesome, man. And yeah, I mean, especially for that four one series, uh, and you know, just, just being basically getting your foot in the door with a fire management program. This is invaluable. I mean, you guys have it all. I mean, you also have an opportunity to direct public policy as well through things you've learned in this field. I think it's awesome. Yeah, you know, and it's the certificates or, you know, certification process makes a really good resume builder and it gives you kind of a flashy title. Your name makes a pretty exclusive list. Uh, but I think it's also a really good opportunity to connect to connect with other fire professionals in the field and to really establish yourself um, kind of in your career. And, you know, when I talk about the accreditation and the safe chapters in the country, there's the typical players you'd expect. The University of Idaho, who's had a super rich uh, history of being involved in the leadership of SAFE at a national level. And then there's like Northern Arizona University, Oregon State University, uh, Humboldt State University, of course, and uh, Cal Poly. But then there's some other wild ones. And it's been really fun for me to interact with these folks and hear more about their programs. But like Stephen F. Austin University in Texas uh, or University of Wisconsin Stevens Point. Um, we have a handful of programs or chapters in Florida. And so it's places that like, I don't really think are like the first thought when you think about like wildland fire programs in the country, but they're producing some really uh, invested professionals who a lot of those folks are coming out of their safe programs, getting introduced to our kind of like Western US programs and getting involved in fire management out West. And that's been really cool to see. And I've had a ton of fun getting to know those chapters. Yeah, there's definitely a big opportunity for uh, interaction there, especially for, you know, areas like 
you said Wisconsin and Texas and Florida, all these places, man, they have wildly, wildly different fuel types and, you know, forest and ecology and for them to have that exchange program, it's pretty, pretty unique. Yeah. If, uh, you know, again, it, the goal of safe in, in one part, I guess, was to provide networking opportunities. And we've certainly checked that box by connecting students from all over the country. And it's not always the easiest thing to do. Um, but it's been a ton of fun to participate in. And I've met some really cool folks. I can't stress that enough. Networking is a powerful thing, man. It's like, uh, like with your organization or like the wildland firefighter Academy, uh, it, down there in Sacramento or now they do it back on the East coast somewhere. I think it's, uh, mm-hmm. Alabama, I believe. But anyways, it's not about going there to get, well, at least for the Academy. I, I keep telling people it's not about there going to get your, you know, S131 or whatever classes you're going to be assigned there. It's about the networking and the relationships that you build at those places. Absolutely. I fully agree. You're interested in networking. Another thing that I'll pitch real quick, uh, the association for fire ecology are like big event that we put on every two years is our international fire ecology management Congress. Uh, and I'm currently sitting on the planning committee for the ninth international fire ecology management Congress it's going to be in Sandestin, Florida. We have an amazing location picked out. Absolutely stunning right next to the beach. It's going to be really hard to focus on fire ecology while I'm there. Uh, but I'm really excited about it. Uh, I'm really heavily involved in kind of the student activities and sourcing the um, kind of monetary support from different companies for that. But I also got to sit on the planning committee for the 8th International Fire Ecology Management Congress. And that went on in Tucson, Arizona last November. And I had the opportunity to attend that conference. It was a ton of fun. We had a great location kind of tucked away in the foothills, uh, outside of Tucson and the networking opportunity was unmatched. It brought folks from all over the United States, but also internationally. We had folks from, um, Italy, Spain, Mexico, uh, other South American countries. And that was wild. And those folks were both there to like participate in the conference, but they were also there to like present different research that they've been producing or talk about their unique experiences with fire management in other countries. And that was so wild to hear about. I think it's easy to get sucked into this idea that like wildfire is really specific to the Western United States, but the reality is like it's prevalent uh, all over the country. Um, There were also a handful of students from Australia that are completing their PhDs that was absolutely wild to get to interact with them and hear about their experience with fire in Australia was such a cool kind of special thing that I don't know if I would have gotten really otherwise. So those events are a great networking opportunity. Um, as I mentioned that ninth international fire college and Congress is going to be in Sandestin, Florida, and that's going to be November 30th through December 4th in 2021. And then the other thing we're really excited about, we've got, um, fire across boundaries, virtual sessions coming up October 20th and 21st in 2021. So initially we were supposed to partner with the Pau Costa foundation and put on a conference in Florence, Italy, Whoa. uh, this fall. Unfortunately, yeah. Wild, right. Uh, and unfortunately with COVID, we kind of had to push that out. So we did some virtual sessions this year and, um, we're still partnering with fire Florence in 2021 to offer these other virtual sessions. Um, and they should be really interesting. One of the topics is actually going to be COVID-19, um, in fire management and how that's impacted kind of our industry. So that should be really interesting to hear more about. That's a hell of a list of keynote speakers, man. And some damn cool topics as well. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. And so I highly recommend, you know, if you have any interest in fire management, uh, as a profession, as an industry, whatever it is, 
try and attend conferences like these. I've had so much fun, um, both helping plan and attending the folks I've gotten to meet are awesome. And the opportunity to hear about different people's experience or what research is being produced and, and what the implications of that research are is awesome. That's awesome, man. So as far as the safe program, what is like the overall mission? If you were to give it like a mission statement, what would it be? So the mission statement almost verbatim is to provide students with opportunities to network, access information and access funding. And we really meet that in a handful of ways. We've talked about the networking opportunities. Um, as far as accessing information goes, the Association for Fire Ecology actually publishes a journal um, called Fire Ecology with all the most kind of up-to-date research on fire ecology and fire management, which is really cool. And both student members and Association for Fire Ecology members get full access to that journal and all its research. So that's a really cool resource, um, something definitely worth checking out. I've used it on a handful of college papers, which has been great. And then providing funding. Uh, and that's been really fun for me. So as the national president, aside from kind of like overseeing all the 20 local chapters, uh, I hold a position on the board of directors for the Association for Fire Ecology. So um, all the kind of safe officers total to one vote on the board of directors. And then I've been involved in the distribution of a ton of funding. So I think in the past year, I've distributed almost $25,000 to different chapters or different students. And we do that in the form of scholarships. Uh, there's the Wayne Harrison scholarship that's actually named for Wayne, who was really pivotal in the uh, creation of the California Association for Fire Ecology back when that, uh, before that became the Association for Fire Ecology. And so that's a scholarship that's available to graduate level students. We offer tree grants um, that are used to get students to our events, to like the International Fire Ecology Management events. Uh, and then we also have like a safe grant process. And so students in the Student Association for Fire Ecology pay membership dues every year. And those essentially come back to the chapters in the form of grants. And so last year, I think we distributed uh, almost six or $7,000 in grants. So like the University of Idaho got a grant that we used to buy another chainsaw for our fuels reduction projects. Other chapters got grants that they use to send people to TREX trainings that we talked about, uh, or they use it for their spring break burn exchange trips. And so that was really cool. Uh, and then I get a decent amount of funding to put towards student activities at different conferences that we put on. And so that's awesome as well. Nice. And do you guys, and you said you offer some scholarships, right? For uh, graduate level classes. Yep. Now. Yeah. Uh, all our scholarships are now for graduate level. Okay. Do you know of any other, uh, I, I know there's a couple of other places out there that, you know, do the, I guess, grant program or I guess scholarship program as well, in case you want to get into the, uh, the education realm and try and further your career, but you're one of many out there. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. And it's definitely worth checking out. Um, you know, something I was going to talk about real quick. I know that mystery ranch has been a, a sponsor of the show. And I got really excited when I heard about their new 1039 scholarship that they're going to be rolling out, hopefully here in the spring. That's a really cool opportunity to see folks get invested in the education side um, and want to support students going through that process is really cool. I can speak from personal experience. It's kind of tough in our industry to find fire specific scholarships. I had a really hard time with that. Uh, I'm really excited to announce that this fall, I was the recipient of um, one of the Ann Visef Memorial Scholarships. Uh, and that was awesome, especially after what was kind of a slower season, fire season until after I was back at school <laughs> was when it really kind of took off. 
that helped kind of alleviate a lot of the financial stress, which was really important. Um, and so Mr. Grinch, if you're listening to this, I'm really stoked that you guys are kind of doubling down on an effort to support students going through fire degrees and working as seasonal employees. Yeah, they're all about it, man. That uh, that's going to be tied tied into the Backbone series as well. So it's going to be opened up to uh, the contributors to the Backbone series. So if you guys uh, see that coming down the line here pretty soon, you'll have an opportunity to win some some grants or some uh, scholarships actually for furthering your career. So I think it's awesome. Another one I wanted to point out was uh, the Wildland Scholars. They're a relatively new nonprofit out of uh, I want to say the El Dorado area, maybe. And uh, yeah, I don't know if they're specific to giving out scholarships for just fire, but general, just general education. I believe that's what they're all about. And I think it's pretty cool to see these people pop up and, you know, do good onto the community that helped raise them. Essentially. It's cool. And and like you said, it's got, it's hard. It's super hard to navigate through the college, the higher education program and hold a fire career at the same time. Yeah. You know, it's really cool to see, like I just mentioned more folks uh, get involved in offering support for those students. And I think that with fire, especially in the Western U S being such a big topic right now, we're going to see increasing support. And whether that support comes from the community level or it comes from a financial level of people supporting uh, students or whatever it may be, you know, I think that there's already a tremendous amount of support from the public and places that we're fighting fire. And I, I just see that continuing. I think folks are really starting to get their head wrapped around how important this idea of fire ecology and land management is. So, yeah. And I hope that it does change. That's for damn sure. And I just, the thing that I have is I kind of have a problem with is that everybody tends to forget like once December, the holidays roll around January, it's snow on the ground. People tend to forget about wildfires until the next, you know, July. And then it's like, Oh, Oh, things are on fire again. So that's one of the missions I I really want to, kind of push from my own personal end is like, Hey, this is still a thing. (laughs) This is going to happen year after year after year. So. And I think that the country is slowly coming around to that idea. I think it was easy initially when we started having like crazy fire seasons to call it an anomaly. Uh, You know, you look back at like the big run in 1910 and like that was an anomaly event. But what we're realizing more and more is that these are no longer anomaly events and the anomaly tends to actually be a slower, shorter fire season. And there's a lot of impacts that are kind of contributing to this, but, uh, my crew's still out in Colorado in October and they're not just like pulling down radio repeaters and stuff, Like they're still flying buckets. Those fires are making big pushes into middle, late October. It's wild. Yeah. The Cameron peak fire just took off again, didn't it? Or is it yeah. another fire? Is it? No, there's two fires in that area. I want to say the Cameron Peak, Cameron and then, Peak, and the Mullen, and the Mullen burned over from like the Wyoming side. I think. Oh wow, yeah, but that's yeah. unheard of to have that level of fire activity this late in the season. I mean, it's the practically the ass end of October, and it's still burning with great intensity over there, which is crazy. I'll tell you what, man, it's bittersweet to be back at school and see all my friends still out having fun, doing cool stuff. You miss it? I really wish I was there. <laughs> Yeah, it's crazy, man. And uh, I think California just classified their first gigafire. Have you heard of that? Have you seen that article rolling around? I have. And it's funny. I had a conversation on Twitter just the other day with someone about this uh, because they're a little bit more in the kind of scientific realm. 
and they were upset about the term gigafire and they were curious about where the term came from. I guess it misrepresents the reality of the situation. Huh. Uh, and so there's been some concern from the academic community about the naming conventions for megafire and gigafire. Um, but I had caught on to it pretty early on through wildfire today and they kind of credit themselves or one of their commenters with coining the term. And I think it's just kind of gotten run with since then without a whole lot of like diving into what the meaning is. But, uh, I, as far as names go, I like it. I think it's kind of neat, but I mean, it comes with a consequence, of course, so it's not really neat at the end of the day. But I think the Washington Post even picked up that Wildfire Today article and published it nationwide. And uh, yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. What fire is that? The, um, the one on the Mendo. Uh, I can't remember the name of the fire. Is it the it, August Complex? Yeah, August Complex. And it's yeah. over a million acres. I think it's just shy of 1.1 million acres between the West August and the August complex, which are same fire, just different management units. You know, and that's the interesting thing. And another topic that uh, wildfire today has been talking about a lot um, is when we talk about classifying large fires, are we misrepresenting the reality of the situation when we're talking about fires that grew into each other or managers of complex? And I think the August complex, or I don't know if they're still calling it a complex, the August fire um, is an appropriate use of like the term gigafire because it really grew together and it is being managed essentially as one fire with multiple management teams now. But there is this weird conversation about like, do complexes deserve to make the record books as like the largest fire in a given area when in reality they're multiple fires? So interesting conversation. I can't say that I have an opinion either way, but it's something I've been doing some reading on. It's pretty interesting how we classify that too. But also, I mean, the fuel type over there too. I mean, a lot of that low-lying brush, that scrub brush area, I mean, that's a... I want to say that's a primary um, fuel type for that entire fire, which is very fire-prone and also very fire-dependent from my understanding. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here. I'm not super keyed into um, a lot of the fire ecology in that kind of NorCal area. Obviously, I grew up just over the border, but um, I can agree with that. I mean, almost all of California is a fire adapted ecosystem at some level. And as has been talked about plenty, uh, it's been kind of starved of that fire element for a long time. And that's had serious consequences that we're kind of are coming home to reap now. Oh, yeah. I mean, that whole 10 o'clock out by 10 the next day kind of ruling back in the day, you know, as a result from the... Uh, the mega fire, if you will, <laughs> the, the big burn, if you will, that whole policy implementation uh, and over the years, I mean, that's kind of bit us in the ass, like I said earlier. Yeah. And you know, there's a lot of talk about federal mismanagement in that. And something that I kind of like to reiterate when I get the opportunity is that it was mismanagement at a certain level, but it was done with the best interest of the country at the time. And there wasn't science to support that that was bad management. Um, and maybe with like a little bit more attentiveness, we could have figured that out sooner. But the reality is we were doing what we thought was best at the time. And sure, it's really shifted kind of the problems past the buck onto us now. Um, but I don't look back at that with a bad feeling and be like, oh, federal mismanagement. It's like, well, the science has changed and it's allowed us to understand the system better. And that is the scientific process in itself. It's, it's a constant reevaluation of what information do we have now and, and how do we interpret this? 
Oh, absolutely. I think another thing too is it's it's the epic gears of bureaucracy as well. I mean, if we we're I guess want to say 10, 20 years behind on policy in general, and we just don't have enough. I don't know, umph to get these policies changed at a rapid enough pace to keep up with the fire environment. So it's going to take time, but I don't know how (laughs) I couldn't even begin to explain how you're going to rapidly change those policies. Yeah, it's, it's far too complicated. It's not just climate change. If you choose or choose not to believe in to believe in it, as I roll my eyes, It's not just forest management. It's not just uh, wooey. It's not just one particular thing. It's a culmination of all of these topics that affects the the fire landscape in the United States. You know, and again, if I haven't pitched the university education enough, uh, it really is an, an interdisciplinary study of federal land management. And I had the opportunity to study some subjects that I wasn't super stoked on, but ended up being really valuable. And I've had the opportunity to study some subjects that I was really stoked on. And I've studied everything um, from soils and hydrology all the way up to like the obviously more operational side of stuff, the policy, the prescribed burn labs, the modeling. Um, I've had a lot of classes that talk about carbon sequestration and terrestrial ecosystem ecology. Um, And it's been really interesting to kind of get this like big picture view of all the issues that have contributed to this and, and what the potential avenues are for trying to alleviate the issue. I got you. Do you guys have any discoveries as far as like a, a bandaid to the growing arterial wound that is our fire ecology in the United States? I mean, do you have any, anything that came out of that that you could like tell us right now or. Yeah. Issue every person in the country, a drip torch. (laughs) There we go. Just go ahead. Unfortunately, there's, there's not going to be an easy fix. And you know, um, one of the things the United States has in droves is an extreme variance in ecology. And that is part of why we have this compound issue with fire management is that it isn't a one size fits all option. It's not one continuous fuel type. And each ecosystem has individual needs um, and whether that's how frequently they get fire or how much moisture they need, um, yada, yada, it, it creates a really complex issue. But if you're into that kind of thing, it's really, really cool to study and be involved with the management of. Um, if you're into kind of puzzles and, and complex issues, it's cool. If you're looking for a quick, easy answer on solving problems. It's not a good industry for that. <laughs> you're not going to find one. <laughs> no. Oh man. So all of this stuff that you do in the winter time, how does that play into your hell attack career? How, how does that, how does that work? That's a good question. Um, you know, I kind of joke about this half-heartedly, but it's honestly not even joking that much. I get a good benefit from spending so much time thinking about fire and spending, there's like a whole part of the year where like I'm thinking about fire ecology and I wish I was just thinking about operational stuff. And then there's like this other half of the year where it's just operational stuff. And I'm like, man, I kind of miss the ecology part. But the reality is, um, aside from just kind of increasing my worldview and understanding of fire, this degree really isn't going to do a tremendous amount for me until down the road. And I kind of recognized that when I came to meet the 401 series and decided I'd rather kind of bite the bullet now and get it out of the way than have to circle back later in my career. Um, where it does have a cool benefit is that I go to a university that has really nice athletic facilities. Um, we have an amazing gym, we have an amazing pool and we have great resources like training opportunities on campus and stuff like that. 
And then circling back to the student association for fire ecology, one thing our chapters picked up on is that we all PT together as a group in the spring. And that's really good for students that are just getting into fire. And it just makes PT more fun um, for all of us that are involved. And so we've got a bunch of fun loops that we'll run around campus. We've got some PT hikes. As we've talked about, we get out and run saw and it's always good to kind of shake the dust off and, and get the saw going again in the spring. And then a lot of us will be in the gym together all winter, um, lifting, doing stuff like that. Nice. So yeah, it's just, it's like the perfect storm of, you know, <laughs> that, that's another cool too, is another fringe benefit I can see with that is uh, staying connected with the community during the slow winter months. You know, a lot of people, they're basically, they get laid off the seasonals, they get laid off and then it's just like, oh, good luck. See you next year. Yeah. So that's pretty pivotal. <laughs> if, I, I could definitely see that that could help uh, keep you connected with your fire family as well in the winter. Yeah, it's really cool. And again, you know, I kind of talked about earlier on in the episode, like a lot of my peers are employed by the same agency on the same force that I am, but we're all in different districts or different resources. And so I get to hear about their experience and learn a little bit more about like their fuel type and what they're doing day to day. They help me kind of figure out the lay of their land uh, and, and vice versa. Um, and again, it is so much fun when we go to training opportunities or we show up on a fire or I'm on a rigs roll with them. Uh, and you already know them, you have a good relationship with them. It's a lot of fun. Hell yeah, man. So does Grangeville make you do like presentations on your work during the winter? No, fortunately <laughs> they don't. Uh, I can say that I think the crew gets absolutely sick of hearing me talk about fire in general and especially like fire ecology throughout the, uh, throughout the summer. I think a presentation might just like push them over the edge. <laughs> They're like, Lars, shut up. We get it, dude. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to sing a Pulaski. <laughs> you can't oh, tell from the episode. There's like one thing I'm known for, uh, both at the university and just like on the Hell Attack crew. It's just like being all about fire. And if I want to talk about something, it's like, I want to talk about fire. <laughs> <laughs> That's not necessarily a bad thing though. But uh, yeah. So what's, what's Grangeville all about, man? You like working for those guys? What's the, what's the module all about? I've had such a great experience with Grangeville. And again, it was one of those pieces where I feel like it just fell into the right, right place at the right time. Uh, when I got the phone call, from my supervisor kind of offering me the position. Initially, the first round of phone calls, he was like, do you know Grangeville? And I was like, dude, I'm going to be honest. I don't. Um, but I asked some good questions and that I think kind of caught his interest and showed that I cared. And not knowing a lot about the program, I took the position. And it ended up being really close to the university, which is really cool. It's about an hour and a half away from the university. And the university is already really cool with letting um, fire students kind of work into the beginning of September, it's pretty easy for us to get at least like two weeks um, away from school to extend our season. And that's really good because especially like here in North central Idaho, that's like the meat and potatoes of our season. We're usually really busy then they're usually pretty strapped for folks. And so they're not super eager to let us go. And we're not super eager to let go of the paychecks yet. So being close by makes it easy. I can get over here for any meetings that I like really need to get done or whatever. Um, but I came to Greensville Health Tech the first year that the consolidation happened. So for those of you guys that are familiar with the Nez Pierce Clearwater, previously there was Greensville Health Tech and then there was Muscle Shell Health Tech. And um, in the summer of 19, they consolidated the two crews into Greensville. So uh, this summer we had two light helicopters. We have two Bell 407s. 
we had a Surge 204, and then we had um, a CWN uh, CH-47 that was just a bucket ship that we managed. So we had the four ships. And what's been really cool about that is that uh, 4th of July weekend, we kicked one of our um, 407s loose. And it has been in Colorado or Wyoming for the entire summer. So since July 4th and on through, uh, it's been there. And so that's been really good because we've just been rotating folks through like the on four ship and then off four ship. And so it gives you a good opportunity to be, um, get kind of like IA experience and then also spend time on larger fires. And then we also rotate a lot of people through the Abro box, which isn't the most exciting per se. Definitely but not my favorite. It is a really good experience. But yeah, it's a cool program. I feel like I got so lucky finding that program and it's been a ton of fun. I absolutely love helicopters. I think it's rad flying and getting to see the Nez clear from the sky is rad. Um, the Nez Pierce Clearwater is wild. Since the consolidation happened, we essentially um, are utilized as like a forest wide resource. So we cover uh, 4 million acres or so of our own land as well as mutual aids. Um, we share a border with the Payette. So we sent guys, uh, we flew a handful of missions down on the Payette this year, just across the river. And then we've also flown missions over in Oregon as well, because we're right kind of at that corner of like the region six, region four, region one boundary, which the is three really corners, cool. so to speak. Yep. Um, but the Nez clear is so varied. Uh, my buddy works down at Slate Creek, which is like 1200 or 1500 feet. And then you get up into like the subway bitter route or the gospel hump and you're up at like just below 9,000 feet in some spots. So there's a huge variance in the fuel types that you're dealing with and the terrain. It's almost all excruciatingly steep, very steep, very rugged forest, but it's rad. I've had such a great experience there and uh, it's been awesome. So I can see a lot of people out there right now being like, damn, this guy's so lucky. I wish I could do that too. And I think it's important to point out the fact that you worked for this and you made it work for you. And then opportunity or opportunities like this is kind of available to just about anyone in the, in the fire service. You just got to move around. I mean, what's your thoughts on that? I will definitely be the first to admit that I've gotten really lucky, but I think that my passion has really helped me along. You know, we joked earlier that like all I talk about is fire, um, but that kind of is the reality. And it's, and it comes from a place of passion and being excited about it. Um, the other thing I will say is I've definitely made sacrifices. Uh, it's not the easiest to go straight from a pretty burly fire season right back into school. And it makes really tough transitions. Um, and there are definitely moments that I just get like, so over that, uh, but in the end it's worth it. And I think that if there's anything you guys should take away from this episode, it's that I've had a really positive experience with the decisions that I've made and the doors that it's opened for me. And then, as you mentioned, the opportunity to move around and fire is almost unmatched. And there's a lot of opportunity in this industry, whether you're with the state agency, a contractor, um, or a federal agency to work all over the Western United States. And even beyond that, there's opportunities to work down in the Southeast. And um, I'm really excited once I'm done with school to kind of move around a little bit more and experience different fuel types. And I'm starting to build this idea of like where I want to kind of settle down and what fuel type I want to work in down the road and kind of what I'm looking for. Um, but that's come with time spent kind of traveling and, and studying different ecosystems and fuel types. But my recommendation would definitely be to take advantage of that and take advantage of any networking opportunities you get. And whether that's on fires or through social media. I mean, just getting this episode organized was a door that got opened through social media. 
Um, and that's kind of like an underplayed element of networking nowadays, but especially in the fire community, that's really prevalent. There are a lot of really cool folks on Instagram, uh, Twitter, stuff like that. Yeah. Take advantage of all those things. That's my best advice. Yeah, man. I think the uh, social networking thing, it's like, it's, it's got its pluses and it's got, you know, it's, uh, detractions as well. But I think it's a very important tool that uh, we should be using, you know, spread the message of wildland fire and what we actually do and how there's the differences between state fed contractor, municipal, all that stuff. I think it's important because it's, uh, I guess, passive education to what we actually do and the reasons why we do it. So I'm glad to see that the social media thing is gaining prevalence. Uh, I wish that some agencies had a more, I don't know, prevalent role in it. And I think it's just an excellent opportunity for outreach and education. And uh, yeah, I don't think it's utilized to its full potential quite yet, but it's getting there. And the other thing that I'll pitch kind of in response to that question, um, that's actually another kind of association for fire ecology um, opportunity is that we just rolled out this new um, program that we're calling the mentoring futures program. And so folks that are members of the Association for Fire Ecology uh, or SAFE can apply to either be mentors or mentees. And so AV has a really longstanding history of facilitating uh, mentor-mentee relationships, but we're really trying to focus in on being more deliberate about that and providing opportunities for future leaders to connect with current leaders and kind of get a leg up in their careers, have a better understanding of different regions or um, kind of how the career progression works. And so I highly recommend checking that out. There's more information on the association for fire ecology website on that. Um, it's something that I'm going to be applying for pretty shortly. And I think it's going to be a really, really valuable opportunity for those that are willing to take advantage of it. Absolutely, man. Uh, knowledge is power straight up, man. It's sharing those experiences to get any leg up and to help develop the future firefighting and fire ecology workforce, man. I think that's critical. That's that's a huge opportunity. If you don't take it, you're missing a big opportunity. Absolutely. I fully agree. Um, you know, and on the topic, I really wanted to kind of thank you for allowing me to come on the episode today, but also thank you for what you provided for the industry. And I think it's so cool what you've done with the podcast and you've really balanced the operational side of fire with like kind of the academic policy science-based side of fire as well. And it's made for a really interesting series to follow. And I know that it's like a tremendous amount of work that you have to put into this. Um, but I think that it's so cool. And I think that it's also played a role in kind of bringing the community together uh, and helping connect folks, which is awesome. I'm so thankful for what folks like you and Hotshot Brewing Mystery Ranch uh, companies like that are doing right now. Well, thanks, man. I mean, yeah, it's the whole idea is to bring people together and kind of share that knowledge, share our experiences and, you know, tighten up the community, if you will. But at the end of the day, man, uh, thank you for saying that and thank you for your kind words. But at the end of the day, man, there's no need to thank me. You got to thank all the people that have been guests on the podcast because that's who makes this show. That's the, those are the real heroes right there. And I mean, there have been so many rad folks that have come on the show I've taken a lot away from it and it's really helped me connect a few pieces just in my head um, of what's going on across the country or what's going on at a local level. And it's been really fun to see. It's almost like you get this like weird access to folks that you normally wouldn't and get to kind of know what's going on with them. It's, it's really special. 
It's been an interesting ride. And uh, yeah, I've definitely learned a lot by this whole opportunity and I hope everybody that's listening to the show has learned as well. But yeah, man, I'm just a facilitator. At the end of the day, like I said, it's, it's kind of an interesting ride, but uh, yeah, hopefully it'll keep continuing to grow. Yeah. On the topic of continuing to grow, uh, any kind of future plans coming on the pipeline for you right now with the show or with life in general? No, we got a big series coming up here with Mystery Ranch. That's about it. Um, we're gonna do the Backbone series. Interviewed Dana. Interviewed their uh, their warranty and repair manager, and he is a freaking riot. Also, the fire program manager from Lucas, or uh, his name's Lucas. He's over there, and he's very invested in the community too. That's where a majority between Dana and Lucas. That's where a majority of the push is going to be coming from for the support of the fire community through Mystery Ranch. Those guys have seriously done some heavy lifting as far as backbone, grassroots, all these other organizations that are starting to pop up. I guarantee you that Mystery Ranch, Hotshot Brewery, and a few other people out there are going to have their hands in it and trying to make that a successful operation. It's pretty cool to see the community come together. Absolutely. You know, and it's been cool, uh, obviously seeing some photos of you over at mystery ranch, uh, at their headquarters and working with those folks. I can't tell you guys how excited I am for those episodes to come out. I'm pretty excited to hear kind of what they have going on. And, and as we talked about the new 1039, the backbone series, all that stuff. Um, it's really cool to see we're in a special time in, uh, the history of fire management. Oh, very much so. And, uh, yeah, hopefully it'll implement some changes, some genuine, you know, grassroots efforts to change some of the policies that we have and educate the public and make lives a little bit better for the boots on the ground. So hopefully we can all, it's going to take an army though. So hopefully we can pull this all off and get things working in the right direction for future generations of firefighters. Sorry, forestry technicians. (laughs) Right. Forestry technicians, of course. (laughs) That's the goal. Hey, well, before I sign off, you know, I wanted to give a quick shout out to, um, I've got three other officers that I work with. My vice president, Risa, um, my secretary, Savannah, who's over at NAU, and then my uh, safety and training officer, Michael, who's also at NAU. They've been a tremendous support. Um, Also, Zach Prusak, who is my liaison between the Student Association for Fire Ecology and the Association for Fire Ecology. Uh, He works for the Nature Conservancy in Florida. And he's been a tremendous support. I've had a great experience working with them. And this really, my experience with AFI and with SAFE wouldn't have been possible without their involvement. So a quick shout out to them. Hell yeah, man. Well, that's uh, taking care of one of the last questions that I have on my episodes. Usually I give the opportunity to give a shout out to a home hero mentor, but you are obviously an avid listener. So you knew that question was coming. (laughs) Oh yeah. So before I let you go though, um, where can we find you? Where can we uh, get a hold of safe and AFE and yourself? And yeah, where can we get a hold of you, man? My information is all over the place. Uh, you can find me on social media at Lars Filson, um, Instagram, Twitter, stuff like that. Uh, and then for the student association for fire ecology, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook, um, at safe underscore national. And then the Association for Fire Ecology is on both Facebook and Twitter um, as at Fire Ecology. And then just Googling, quick Google of the Association for Fire Ecology will turn up our website with tons of information about the mentoring programs, how you can get involved, upcoming conferences, the Student Association for Fire Ecology. And through the AP website, you can find my contact information, email, stuff like that. Uh, Someone needs to get a hold of me for anything like that. Hell yeah, man. Well, looking forward to seeing what you guys have coming down the road and the future developments of Mr. Lars Phyllis and himself here. So yeah, do you just want to say thank you for being on the show and uh, divulging all the insider information for Utah 
or University of Idaho safe and AFE and the rest of the chapters around the uh, country. That's pretty cool, man. Absolutely. I really appreciate you having me on. It's been something I've been looking forward to for a long time. So I'm glad that we finally, uh, finally linked up to do it. Oh yeah, man. Glad to have you on the show. It's been informative. Awesome. Have a good one. Right on dude. Take care. There we go, ladies and gentlemen. Another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast is in the books with our good friend, Lars Bilson. Lars, dude, thank you so much for being on the show and uh, sharing a little insight and knowledge to as to what goes into the University of Idaho Student Association of Fire Ecology is all about. It's pretty damn cool. I had no idea that this whole thing was out there. And uh, yeah, pretty damn cool. And it's part of a larger organization, an overarching organization, if you will, the uh, Association of Fire Ecology, which is pretty cool. And uh, yeah, I had no idea that it was like a global thing. Pretty damn cool. But if you guys want to find out more about these uh, two programs, I'll definitely include the links in the show notes. And uh, yeah, just go back through, click those links and uh, check them out. Lars, once again, thank you so much for being on the show, man. Definitely appreciate it. Wish we could have got you on here sooner, but I understand uh, fire assignments happen. So yeah. Glad to have you on, man. Finally. <laughs> As for the rest of you, hope everybody's doing well. And uh, yeah, just uh, definitely stay safe out there. This is apparently the season that will never end. And uh, yeah, whether it be California in California or Colorado, yeah, we'll, uh, it, it, all things will come to an end. So hopefully it'll start snowing and raining soon. But special shout out to our sponsors. We got the Smoky Generation it's the digital archive of wildland firefighting stories dating all the way back to the 1940s. Bethany, you have a kick-ass organization. Keep doing what you're doing. We got Manscaped. If you guys want the perfect package, well, go over to www.manscaped.com and enter code AnchorPoint at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. We got the ass movement. Go check out their uh, turd trowels. They're pretty uh, awesome and they'd make a great holiday gift, which those holidays are right around the corner. So check that out. And we got Hotshot Breweries. Hotshot Brewery. Purveyors of the finest damn coffee in the world. And they make kick-ass coffee for a kick-ass cause. We got Mystery Ranch. And they've got the 1039 scholarship and the backbone series coming out and i'm stoked to be working with those uh folks and yeah, definitely had a lot of fun up there in bozeman when i was with you guys so thank you and last but not least we got the wildland firefighter foundation i actually just got off the phone with dr burke over there and uh yeah you'll be uh, seeing some stuff coming down the line from uh us as well from wildland firefighter foundation and the anchor point podcast so with that being said burke vicky Thank you so much for what you guys are doing over there at the Wildland Firefighter Foundation. And if you guys want to go find out more or uh, support the cause, go over to www.wffoundation.org and check it out. For everybody else, you guys know the drill. Stay safe. Stay savage. We'll see you on the next one. Peace. Peace.